in the early morning hours of Sunday, March 17, 2013. Two individuals were returning to Altoona, Pennsylvania from a job in a nearby village of Williamsburg. They were traveling southwest on Route 22 through what is locally known as Geeseytown, a rural suburb of Hollidaysburg, Pennsylvania. And as they rounded the little curve in the road, their attention had drawn them to the left on the opposite side of the road and standing or kind of squatting in a clearing just a few feet off the side of the road was some kind of creature. And it came into profile as they passed with its right side to them. It was squatting down on its legs close to the ground, but was doing so in a bipedal fashion. The legs had a specific joint and hawk characteristic of that, you know, of, of, of similar to a canine not like a human leg at all. It had front limbs and arms and looked like it was possibly crouching over something, maybe a smaller animal. The arms were long in proportion to its entire body. The hands were more human-like as opposed to paws. It gave the impression of great strength, having distinct and well-defined muscle build but was not built on a massive frame. It seemed more thin and sinewy. If it had stood fully erect, the driver and his friend would have estimated that the creature would have been close to about seven feet tall. It was covered in fur that was grayish silver in color. The creature seemed unnaturally shiny, although it could have been a reflection from the headlights or even the moon. It had pointy, erect, canine-like ears that were somewhat laid back on its head. The head was very large and very wolf-like in overall appearance. The muzzle was also very wolf-like or canine-like, although the snout wasn't exceptionally elongated. It had canine-like teeth from what they saw, and to the best of their recollection, the eyes had an amber color, but may have had a reddish glow or a reflection to them. It had a wolf-like tail. It turned its head to watch them and track them as they passed. It seemed quite aware of their presence. Hello, my name is Don Mast, and this is the podcast about everything. Just a little bit about me, besides being co-host right here, I'm a co-founder of a marketing company here in Altoona, Pennsylvania. It's Rough House Marketing. It's a father and son business, and I'm also a multi-million dollar sales producer and award-winning uh, tech and advertising executive. Uh, it's kind of Mad Men stuff, been doing it since I've been a little kid really enjoy it. I love the creativity of it. And I'm also a, a husband and a dad and an antique collector. And, you know, I collect those, those noisy phonographs and old smelly books from the 1800s, as well as, you know, those hard to see creepy tin types, as well as uh, some old cameras. And, you know, while we're on the topics of old things and antiques, I'd like to introduce my fashion forward co-host, 
Mike Allison. Thanks, Don. I think <laughs> uh, I'm Mike Allison. I'm your co-host. I'm an artist. Uh, I sculpt. I paint. I paint murals. I do architectural restoration. Um, I'm a amateur and also a mature horror historian and folklorist, and I'm the master of the puppets. Wow. Okay. It doesn't look like you are wearing a costume this week. And after you just said that, what gives? Well, how do you know that? How do we know anything, Don? <laughs> I mean, really, I might be a skinwalker, a brujo, a magician. Just wearing a mic suit this week. You never know. Oh, hopefully you put a towel down or something, you know. Um all right. Yeah. <laughs> so all right, all right, all right, all right. On okay, you already have me creeped out here and we haven't even gotten started this week, but but I think we're gonna be talking about dogmen. And to me, it sounds like, you know, they're kind of like werewolf guys. You know, so tell us, what is the story this week? Okay, well, just like most of the cryptids we've been talking about, they have a fairly ancient history. Uh, these, like so many things, date back to ancient Greece. Um, they call these creatures cynocephaly. Uh, this alleged race of beings was described also in the writings of that great truth teller, Marco Polo, who claimed <laughs> to have come across the whole island of these creatures uh, before init supposedly initi initiating a trade deal with them. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> the Sinocephaly were prominently featured in works of art, uh, from the medieval pieces to depictions of St. Christopher in the Eastern Orthodox Church. And, and didn't ancient Egypts have like this, uh, like, like a canine or a dog or a jackal-headed god named uh, Anubis? You know, I, I think he was the god of like the, the underworld. And, and if I recall through the research, you know, he was also the Egyptian god of mummification and the afterlife, as well as the patron god of lost souls and the helpless. And, uh, you know, he's one of the oldest gods, from what I understand, of Egypt. And most, you know, he's the one that was most likely developed from, you know, an earlier, much older jackal god. Um, and I, I think if I could pronounce this correctly, Weepawep, Weepawet, uh with whom he is often confused with, I think. Yeah, it's weep a wet as opposed to uh, uh, the, the, what they sing during the Yes, there you go. Um, and there are those European stories of wild men and berserkers that we previously talked about in our episode, Dracula and Wolfman Go to Hollywood. So I guess that these legends have traveled across the seas with the settlers, came to America, and became adapted to their new home, right? Yes. And our very first story of the Dogman takes place in the swamps of Louisiana surrounding New Orleans. Oh, I've been to New Orleans a few times, and I must say they have phenomenal food from catfish po'boys, jambalaya with a kick of spice, and, you know, they have these little things called beignets that you could have with, like, milk or coffee. They're kind of like a like a donut, but they're, like, warm and they're soft and, oh, flaky, delicious. Mm. Yes, but uh, 
But, mm. I know, right? But when I was in yeah. New Orleans, there was like a strange side too. And, you know, when we look at the strange side, you know, locals believe that the city is actually the home of like real vampires. You know, the, the story was like during the 1930s, brothers John and Wayne Carter were executed for committing multiple murders. I, I think about a dozen bodies drained of their blood were discovered after the, you know, the, the, some young woman managed to escape their apartment. And the thing is, sightings of these brothers are often reported to this very day, you know, as their bodies mysteriously vanished from the family funeral vault. And, you know, wow. yeah. And, and, and I must say, you know, uh, w- when you look at new Orleans, it's full of, you know, these weird type of stories. And then also this whole voodoo culture, you know, dating back to the 19th century. I mean, it's 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 really kind of spooky. I mean, the the city's most prominent icon for this religious type thing, you know, this voodoo thing is a uh, Marie Marie Laveau, Marie Laveau, an illegitimate daughter of a plantation owner, uh, Charles Laveau, and uh, his Haitian slave mistress. You know, she's known as a hairdresser and a practitioner of elaborate voodoo rituals making her a revered, quite revered um, person in the community or figure in the community. Um, her final resting place is actually at the St. Louis Cemetery Number 1. But locals believe, of course, that, you know, she actually materializes to lead voodoo warships every year during St. John's Eve, every single year. And the thing is that that cemetery, you know, it's it's like right along the main road. There. I passed it quite a bit of times and when you talk about these cemeteries, they often, they've always fascinated me because they're super creepy. They're all above ground and, you know, they're just Northwest of Bourbon street. And you could visit these tombs of, you know, many new Orleans icons. And, you know, it's just a labyrinth of, of all these graves above the ground. And, uh, you know, there are also plantations with, you know, numerous ghost sightings that have been reported for years and years and years. And, you know, it's considered one of the most haunted landmarks, one of the most haunted places in the United States. And, you know, just kind of remembering back to New Orleans too, you know, really kind of what takes the cake uh, is there was a story that I had heard about uh, 300 coffins found inside of a convent's attic. Um, Wow. Yeah. Michael, we can do an entire series on this strange and scary sky, strange and serious, scary side of New Orleans. But again, I stress, if we do that, we have to have some of their food when we do the podcast because there's this oh, re- yeah. there, there's this restaurant there uh, at the Falacha, uh, Atcha Falaya is their name, and it was one of my favorite restaurants. We ate there, I think, two or three times, and it's on 901 Louisiana Avenue, and. Not only was it featured on the uh, episode of uh, American Horror Story, the it was the witches episode, you know, the coven. Um, mm-hmm. But it but it also has this wonderful Southern Creole, like it has shrimp and grits, and that's also where I had alligator for the first time. Okay, I'm done talking about food. Well, at least the alligator didn't have you. <laughs> exactly. So, but shrimp and grits, yeah, that's the best. <laughs> But this isn't a cooking show. I know. This sorry. is a tale of legendary creatures brought to Louisiana by the French Canadian settlers known as the Arcadians. 
They settled the rural area of the swamps and the pine forests and brought their folklore along with them, like people do. The Arcadians became the Cajuns. Their stories of the classic French werewolf, the Loup-Garou, became the swamp monster known as the Rougarou. Well, you said that this isn't a cooking show, but you know we have a local manufacturer right here in Blair County, Pennsylvania, that makes spicy jerky, and the company name is Rougarou. So, you know, why is it that, that I, I guess it's me, maybe I'm hungry, I don't know. Why do we keep talking about food in this episode? I don't know, uh, but you're the one doing it. <laughs> now I want beef jerky. Maybe you're maybe you are hungry or something. Yeah. Uh, so Rougarou represents a variation, pronunciation, and spelling of the original French loop guru. So according, we'll bring in an expert. According to Barry Jean Ancelet, uh, an academic expert on Cajun folklore and a professor at the University of Louisiana at Lafayette. The tale of the Rougarou is a common legend across French Louisiana. Both words are used interchangeably in southern Louisiana. Some people call the monster the Rougarou. Others refer to it as the Loup-Garou. The Rougarou legend has spread for many generations, either directly from French settlers to Louisiana or by, by way of the French-Canadian immigrants centuries ago. So... Right there is an adaptation of folkloric stories that we always mention. Just like all of these adaptations of Native American legends we've been talking about in this series particularly. Yeah, once again, it's that blending of stories as cultures come together, as one culture supersedes another. Uh, in the Cajun legends, the creature is said to prowl the swamps around Arcadia and greater New Orleans, and the sugarcane fields and woodlands of the region. The Rougarou most often is described as a creature with a human body and the head of a wolf or a dog, similar to the werewolf legend. Wow. Okay, so, so now I see the connection with our subject. You know, they are basically describing the same creature that those two guys claim to have seen in my introduction from earlier, right here in central Pennsylvania. Yep. And just like in most folk tales, the storytelling has been used to inspire fear and obedience in children. The stories that have been told by elders to persuade their Cajun children to behave themselves. <laughs> in other words, don't do that or the Rougarou will get you. Um, according to another variation, the wolf-like beast will hunt down and kill Catholics who don't follow the rules of Lent. <laughs> and this coincides with the French Catholic loop guru stories, according to which the method for turning into a werewolf was to break the Lenten fast seven years in a row. <laughs> so it's another cursed story based on the violation of religious observance. I mean, just like the that that surrounded the descendants of John Lampton and the Lampton worm and you know, we discussed that in our episode on monsters like sea serpents. Yeah. Um, yeah. Once again, there's this theme that runs through all these stories and it gets gruesome. Um, a common blood sucking legend says that the Rougarou is under the spell for 101 days. And after that time, the curse is transferred from one person to another when the Rougarou draws another's human blood. During that day, the creature returns to human form. Although acting sickly, 
the human refrains from telling others of the situation for fear his friends and family will turn on him and kill him. Hmm. Other stories range from the Rougarou as a form of rabbit <laughs> to the Rougarou being derived from witchcraft. In the later claim, only a witch can make a Rougarou, either by turning into a wolf herself or by cursing others with lycanthropy. Okay, so, so there's a witch's curse that popped up in a Lon Chaney uh, Jr. movie, and it was the transmission of werewolfism, you know, and it's like a disease of, of getting bitten, you know, and, and you become the werewolf. But a rabbit, I mean, no, come on, you know, it sounds like that, that killer rabbit from Monty Python and the Holy Grail, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, there's been a number of dogmen sighting reported over the last several years in locations ranging from upstate New York to Michigan and Wisconsin. These sightings often occur in wooded areas throughout the northern United States. Now, one of the most notorious locations for sightings is in Utah at the famous or infamous Skinwalker Ranch. Oh, boy. There are two basic types. The first one is like what we've been talking about, part canid with a dog or wolf head and hawk legs like a wolf. The other is a bulky, large, lumbering creature with ape-like legs, basically a Bigfoot with a long, dog-like muzzle. The more wolf-dog, wolf-like dogmen are also described as having powerful abs, so I guess they spend <laughs> a lot of their spare time working out when they're not scaring people. <laughs> so they're in the gym. All right. <laughs> yeah, they're in the gym. They're hitting the gym. <laughs> so, so we have all these sightings, right? But you know, we you know, as we talked about with the Thunderbird. You know, we had the cowboys that claim to have shot it. You know, we have that picture that, that kind of has the, you know, that has the guy standing with it. Do we have mm -hmm. any dead dogmen? Well, a rancher in Montana shot a wolf-like creature that was attacking his livestock. The creature was unidentified by local authorities, leading some to speculate whether it might be a cryptid, a mythical dogman, or some sort of dog-wolf hybrid. Animal experts quickly noticed the number of abnormalities that ruled out the animal as a purebred wolf, including paws that were too small, but with abnormally long claws, ears that were too big, canine teeth that were too short, and a strange fur coat. According to Montana wildlife experts, the animal was a non-lactating female canid of some sort, believed to be some kind of hybrid, though nothing conclusive could be recorded. The creature's carcass was sent to a lab in Bozeman, Montana, where tissue samples could be collected and later examined by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Well, we do know that scientists have been seeing more and more hybrid species that they claim are due to, you know, climate change. And, you know, of course, climate change. And, and polar bears and brown bears have been crossbreeding. And, and I guess this is where we put in the sexy music while we're talking about breeding. Mm -hmm. and, sure. and so we have coyote and feral dogs and, you know, wolf hybrids, you know, all, you know, starting to, to show up, which is really kind of scary. Yep. Well, dating back to the late 1800s, accounts of upright walking canids have been reported across North America. Like some werewolf legends, dogmen have features that appear to be a mix of human, dog, wolf. Witnesses often compare their size to that of a bear, reaching up to seven feet when standing erect. In comparison, gray wolves 
only grow to be around five feet in length. I mean, that's a big animal still, but mm. yeah, not standing up to seven or eight feet. Wow. There are a lot of basketball teams in the NBA that may uh, decide to uh, take on one of these guys. A couple of them anyway. Yeah, yeah, that whole Teen Wolf thing where yeah. it was based around basketball. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> I knew we would go so. to a movie there. but uh. Oh, yeah, you got to go to a movie. So. So, so, you know, we know that people have all kinds of experiences that, that scare them. And then they report all kinds of things. You know, these folklore stories can somewhat fill in the blanks. But then also movies seem to do this now, too. Yeah, yeah. Um, a hairy humanoid with canine features, given the name The Beast of Bray Road, has been cited in Wisconsin, dating back to 1936 on a rural road outside of Elkhorn, Wisconsin. More recent sightings uh, in the 1980s and 90s placed the creature in Racine, Walworth, and Jefferson counties. Those who have seen the beast describe him as eating or hunting or scavenging, you know, along the side of the road. Mm, well, well, you know, he's got to eat, you know, I mean, he's, sure. He probably has a family to support, you know, of a bunch of little might. humanoid canid creatures. But, you know, <laughs> so these are just like creatures that they have seen here, right here in Town, which is not too far from where I'm sitting right now. Yeah, he was he was scavenging along the side of the road when they spotted him. <laughs> yeah, true. So, okay, so this beast uh, from Wisconsin is also known as the man wolf, the bear wolf, and the indigenous dog man. It's said to be around six feet tall with gray and brown fur. Its face resembles a wolf with shiny yellow eyes and pointed ears. Its body, though furry, looks like a muscular man. The creature is said to run and walk on all fours on its legs or just its hind legs and has been spied sitting on its hunches and kneeling like a man. Well, it kind of sounds like the beast of, of Bray Road. You know, it, it sounds like the beast is more like the Bigfoot of Dogman. And, you know, I, I must say before I lose this, every one of these that we talk about, they all seem to be ripped. You know, these big muscular guys, oh, yeah. you know, we joke about them hitting the gym, but I'm, you know, I'm thinking about it. You know, I bet you in today's society, someone is, is going to try to figure out and put together a gym program that is based around the dogman lifestyle. You know, I, I see it coming. I predicted it right now. Be a dogman. <laughs> Pump hard. Eat roadkill. <laughs> Fill your full potential. Yeah, I can see Ew. it. Uh, <laughs> oh, well. Okay, so, so anyway... Some people believe it's a werewolf. Others think it's Bigfoot. And some believe it's something else entirely. It's never attacked anyone. Though some people claim it's acted aggressively, running at them, and jumping on their vehicles. Some researchers consider the beast of Bray Road to be identical to a kind of Wisconsin Bigfoot that locals call the Bluff Monster. Not the Buff Monster, but the Bluff Monster. <laughs> or the Eddie. Others, including Native Americans, believe it to be the Wendigo, which has been spied in Minnesota. Others believe it has simply been misidentified and is a wolf, a bear, or a really big feral dog. Maybe one of these dog-wolf hybrids. Uh, it, it could also be Harry from Harry and the Hendersons. I mean... Yeah, yeah. There's another movie reference because, that's... 
Yeah. We're going to talk about next week. <laughs> I mean, he didn't hurt anybody. You know, Harry never yeah. hurt anybody. He was a good guy, a good dog, man. I mean, whatever. But anyway, you mentioned Wendigo. You know, I didn't think that yeah. Wendigo was a kind of a Bigfoot. No, it isn't. The original Eastern Native American legend of the Wendigo is about a gigantic winter ghost monster. It's composed of a rotting corpse, oh. and it has an insatiable hunger for human flesh. Well, there went the cooking show that we were talking about <laughs> earlier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, to me, sounds more like a, you know, a, a metaphoric warning about cannibalism during the times of winter starvation. You know, you would turn this into this thing. You, you would turn into this thing because of that kind of taboo activity. You know, it, of course, it's cursed. And you know, isn't the Beast of Braywood Road the subject of a couple of horror movies? Yeah. Uh, this werewolf-like creature has been portrayed regularly in the media since the first sightings and even had a low-budget movie based on its legend. And when, next week when we talk about Bigfoot, there's a ton of low-budget movies we'll be discussing. <laughs> uh, the number of sightings from the late 1980s and early 1990s prompted a local newspaper, the Walworth County Week, to assign, actually assign one of the reporters named Linda Gottfried to cover the story. At first, she was pretty skeptical, but soon became convinced of its authenticity and later wrote a book called The Beast of Bray Road, Trailing Wisconsin's Werewolf. See, I must say, a lot of these, these like movies and portrayals, almost all of them are low budget. You, know, you can find a lot of them on YouTube. And uh, you know, it's kind of unfortunate because these are some really cool stories. But some big budget releases have come out. But anyway, closer to home, I believe that we have a lot of sightings right here in Pennsylvania, right? Yeah. And while modern reports generally refer to these creatures as dogmen, probably because of the pop culture attraction drawn to it, by television and movies, low-budget movies, and the internet, Pennsylvania has been the sighting for numerous werewolf legends and tales. They range from a local legend from 1899 in Northumberland County of a hunter shooting a wolf and instead finding a man dead of a gunshot wound at the mm. end of a blood trail. To a November 2011 sighting, the large wolf-like creature standing running and jumping on its hind legs along a road near Troy in Bradford County. We should also note that the Michigan sightings actually date back to the early French explorers who reported seeing a wolf-like creature that walked on two legs. They were, the word they used to describe it came from French folklore. They called it loup garou. Wow. So what about all the Native American beliefs about these shapeshifters. I mean, we mentioned Skinwalkers and Skinwalker Ranch. It's the subject of TV programming now. What's it all about? Okay, so in the American Southwest, the Navajo, the Hopi, and the Utes, and other tribes each have their own version of what they call a skinwalker. But it boils down to the same thing. A possibly powerful and malevolent witch is capable of transforming itself into a wolf, a coyote, a bear, a bird, or any other animal. When the transformation is complete, the human inherits the speed, the strength, and the cunning of the animal whose shape it's taken. Some skinwalkers are purely evil in intent. 
the general view is that they are capable of all sorts of terrible things. They make people sick. They commit murders. They are incredibly powerful magic practitioners. Mm. For the Navajo and some of the other tribes of the Southwest, the tales of skinwalkers are not mere legend. Rather, it's a very strongly held belief, especially among the Navajo. So now we're going down a path that really kind of chills me to the bone. You know, we're talking about, you know, evil magic and, and even evil spirits. Yep. And we'll bring in another uh, expert, anthropologist David Zimmerman oh. of the Navajo Nation Historic Preservation Department tells us, skinwalkers are folks that possess knowledge of medicine, both practical, like healing the sick, and spiritual, like maintaining the harmony of the universe. They're both wrapped together in ways that are nearly impossible to untangle. In the Navajo world, where witchcraft is important, where daily behavior is patterned to avoid it, prevent it, and cure it, there are as many words for its various forms as there are words for different types of snow among the Eskimos. It's extremely difficult to get Native Americans to discuss skinwalkers, even in the most general terms. Practitioners of adishkash, or witchcraft, are considered to be very real presences in the Navajo world. Few Navajo went to cross paths with skinwalkers. Um, the curious Navajo will not speak openly about them, especially with strangers, because to do so might invite the attention of an evil witch. After all, a stranger who asks questions about skinwalkers might just be one himself looking for the next victim. And I just want to throw something in here. This dis disability this inability to untangle this and say, okay, this person can cure you or kill you with their magical knowledge is very typical of these sort of shamanistic religions. Right. And, um, you know, it sort of shows a totally different approach to um, than Western dualism philosophically in other words they're they're saying you know you can't it's you can't separate good and evil like that you know you can't it's they don't like they're not clear <laughs> it's hard to define in other words it's a, a it sort of like has a very modern look at human psychology you know it's like what makes us good one minute what makes us evil the next well here's folk tales about skinwalkers you know? Yeah, it, it, and it's funny because like the the first thing you really pointed out there is you said that they have a strong these skinwalkers have a strong knowledge of medicine. So I'm thinking, oh, so Doctor Quinn, medicine woman, might have been a skinwalker. No, sorry. I think <laughs> actually, no, I think actually there was a skinwalker featured on an episode of Doctor Quinn, medicine woman. I mean, more or less as a Native American, of course, right? Uh, magician or healer you know uh, that sort of thing and so you know shape-shifting magicians you know they're also you know who are also tricksters you know isn't the it's more of the you know the the classic southwestern native american trickster named coyote also a kind of dogman sure uh, skinwalkers are not boogeymen they aren't the figures made up to scare children mm -hmm. unlike the uh rougarou um Unlike Anglo stories and werewolves and witches, they don't lose control and kill everything in their path. 
or maliciously curse people for no reason. <laughs> they do it for <laughs> revenge. Uh, like humans, they do kill. And like humans, they have motivations for those acts of aggression. And sometimes those motivations are not readily understood. Power and revenge will fuel their murderous intent. But such things can't occupy the brain of a rational creature all the time. And skinwalkers do not make murder part of their daily routine. So, you know, there's skinwalkers aren't capturing Hansel and Gretel and baking them into gingerbread or anything like that. Other than their origin story, legends of skinwalkers rarely include the de death or any kind of mauling. Instead, common stories include skinwalkers in their animal form, sometimes running alongside a vehicle and matching their speed, even as the driver accelerates. Sometimes they'll get bored with this routine and simply disappear into the surrounding wilderness. There's that whole trickster thing. In some respects, it seems rather playful, almost like a dog chasing a car that passes by on the street. <laughs> I actually think that that's part of that workout thing. You know, I, I yeah, it could be. It could be the whole dog man routine. <laughs> so, so once again, you know, it's a trickster being. Um, and, and one thing that seems to separate all these stories. Uh, of the dogmen sightings from the traditional European werewolf stories is that, you know, all these reports, no matter how scary there are, no one actually gets hurt. Like you said, no one gets mauled, you know, no one dies um, and no one is harmed. They're all just in scared. other instances. Yeah. They yeah. just scared in other instances, people report seeing or hearing skinwalkers outside their homes at night. Rarely, however, does the skinwalker enter a dwelling. Skinwalkers have been reported by both native and non-native peoples living in the Southwest, including a popular story in New Mexico of skinwalkers being seen by the state police on a stretch of roadway in Navajo territory. Whoa, okay, stop the press. Wait a minute. So maybe the roadrunner in the Warner Brothers cartoon is a skinwalker. I mean... Wait, it's a skinwalker being chased by a coyote. Bam! I just blew my own mind right there. Wow. Yeah, yeah I think you, you're on to something here. <laughs> Too much coffee. Trick, <laughs> trick, or, or trickster upon trickster upon trickster, you know. Falling down that, um, that magic rabbit hole, it, it can be a little scary. In Navajo thinking, all good things in life result from a respect for the harmony of the universe, known as Hoso. An orderly balance governs the actions and thoughts of all living beings. Like in any other ideal state, this can be difficult to maintain. <clears throat> I will just passingly here mention 2020. Uh, <laughs> whether conscious or unconscious, or the result of a skinwalker, a transgression can result in illness misfortune, or even a disaster and can be remedied only with a prescribed ceremony to the offended deity. Unlike Western medicine, Navajo curses are targeted at mind, body, and spirit, calling on the patient and divine people to restore his harmony with the world. Now, this is kind of like folk healing, uh, and it has a lot of, uh, yeah, I guess you'd say it's it has a lot in common with stories right here with our Pennsylvania Dutch powwow magic healers. You know, we could do an episode just on Pennsylvania Dutch folklore. You know, I think we need to do that sometime. And, and I remember, you know, we were talking out at 
Baker Mansion about an old book. I think it was from Germany or from the Dunkers or the Dutch that talked about healing and powwows. Oh, yeah. It's called The Long Lost, Long Lost Friend or The Long Lost Companion. And it's basically a grimoire. It's a book of magic spells. And most of them taking the form of Christian prayers. But they are used to by practitioners uh, to heal and also to curse and with lots of other sort of folk knowledge wrapped in there too. It's sort of an all-purpose thing. And mentioning voodoo, um, one, of the, one of the books that's often been found in the collections of voodoo practitioners in New Orleans and Haiti and places like that is The Long Lost Companion. Hmm. So anyway, yeah, we should definitely do a show about that. And like the powwow practitioners, skinwalkers are tied up with the, Na Na the Navajo concept of good and evil. The Navajos believe that life is a kind of wind blowing through you. Some people have a dark wind and they tend to do evil things. And how do you tell? People who have more money than they need and aren't helping their kinfolk, that's one symptom of it. Ah. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Along with this tendency towards evil, if they're initiated into a witchcraft cult, they get a lot of power. And depending on the circumstances, they can turn into a dog, they can fly, they can disappear, and the power can further corrupt them. Wow. And, you know, I, I know we can associate some of those to what we're experiencing here in 2020 with everything that's going on. But, you know... I think I already know the answer to this, but I need to ask for all of our listeners out there. So we've gone from Europe stories of magical beings to Native American stories, you know, looking at skinwalkers. But the bottom line is, you know, is all this real? Are these real beings? Are they real? Are they real? Hmm. Who can say? <laughs> In some respects, the tales of skinwalkers, you know, it can be tied to something like UFO sightings. It's too strange to picture it actually being true. I mean, you know, we look at magic and witches and things like that, um, you know, as something to dress little kids up as and do at Halloween when we go trick-or-treating and that sort of thing. And it's and it's fun to get scared at a horror movie or that involves black magic or something like that. You know, lots of people um, younger than me, you know, there's that old age thing, you know, have indulged in all this stuff playing Dungeons and Dragons, you know? Um, so, but at the same time, there's so many of these people expressing that they've had some sort of weird experience that they can't explain. So many that, how do you dismiss this? Right. So, the, regardless, the tales or legends of skinwalkers are prevalent and meaningful to the native peoples of New Mexico. It's rooted in their histories and their traditions. And like many other things we don't always understand about different cultures, it does command our respect. People experience things that are hard to explain, like I said, and lots of factors will become part of that explanation, as we've been seeing as we've been talking about these cryptids. 
Right. And, and as you said at the very beginning, uh, you said uh, that, you know, whether they're real or not, even like UFO sightings. Well, keep in mind, didn't the government just release documents recently about UFOs? I mean, I don't know if that's even real, but, you know, I keep hearing it over and over again that like. Oh, uh, we'll talk about that. <laughs> OK. All right. I'm just saying. But OK, so it brings us to Skinwalker Ranch. Okay, it, it sounds yeah. like something that like children shouldn't be allowed to watch. But um, what in the world <laughs> is it all about? Okay, well, Skinwalker Ranch. Some people have called it a supernatural place. It's one of those nexus points for every bit of weird stuff that could possibly happen. Other people have just said, "Oh, it's cursed. The land is cursed." So a guy named Terry Sherman got so spooked by the happenings of his new cattle ranch that 18 months after moving his family of four to the property, which is now known as Skinwalker Ranch in northeastern Utah, he sold the 512-acre parcel of land. He and his wife Gwen shared their chilling experiences with a local reporter in June of 1996. They'd seen, okay, here's the laundry list, Okay. crop circles, UFOs, the systematic and repeated mutilation of their cattle. But, but not just torn apart, but oddly surgical and bloodless. Oh, wow. Within three months of the story's publication, Las Vegas real estate magnate and UFO enthusiast Robert Bigelow bought the property for $200,000. Now, it's interesting because, you know, I, I think that maybe all these stories came about because they wanted to increase the value of their parcel, but... 512 acres of land. I mean, that's a lot of land. So yeah, this guy that purchased it, this this Robert Bigelow guy, who is he? What What's he all about? Well, I, I won't even say Amityville Horror here, but I just said Amityville Horror. Okay. Um, okay, so Bigelow, he's a millionaire real estate developer. He has a lot of heavy-duty political connections because he's rich. He donates a lot of money. After many years in the late 1960s through the 90s, he developed commercial real estate in the form of hotels, motels, and apartments. Then he founded Bigelow Aerospace in 1999. In his previous real estate career, Bigelow built approximately 15,000 units and purchased another 8,000. For most of his career, he held on to almost everything he bought, but eventually unloaded much of his housing stock in the boom years just before the 2008 crash. Hmm. Well, isn't that interesting timing? You know, maybe, maybe he's a psychic also. Or, you know, maybe his well-placed friends told him something was up. Right. <laughs> in 2013, Bigelow reflected on this. He said people just really wanted to throw money away, so that was lucky. <laughs> <laughs> In 1995, he founded the National Institute for Discovery Science to research and advance the study of various fringe sciences and paranormal topics, most notably ufology. The organization researched cattle mutilations and black triangle reports, ultimately attributing the latter to the military's experiments. Mm. And the institute was disbanded in 2004. He's indicated that he plans to spend up to $500 million to develop the first commercial space station, 33% of the $1.5 billion that NASA expended on a single space shuttle mission, 
Bigelow Aerospace has launched two experimental space modules, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, and has plans for full-scale manned space habitats to be used as orbital hotels, research labs, and factories. Wow. Bigelow's BEAM module was launched to the International Space Station on April 8, 2016, on the 8th SpaceX cargo resupply mission. In 2013, Bigelow indicated the reason he went into commercial real estate business in the first place was to obtain the prerequisite resources to be able to fund a team developing space travel. And, of course, he wants to build space destinations. You know, why just not travel someplace when you can stay in a comfy Bigelow hotel? <laughs> Bigelow was interviewed on Coast to Coast AM in March of 2013. In May of 2017, he appeared on 60 Minutes and was absolutely convinced there's been extraterrestrial visitors to the Earth. In 2017, he announced he planned to put an inflatable space hotel into orbit by 2022. The plan is a part of a partnership with United Launch Alliance, and the project is estimated to cost $2.3 billion in total. <laughs> wow. So so Bigelow is creating the new Lakita or the Hampton Inn for E.T., and it's going to cost $2.3 billion in total. Wow. Pretty much, yeah. yeah. It, Your it, tax dollars at work. <laughs> <laughs> and so... You know, I know that show that you mentioned that coast to coast, you know, it's that it's that all night show. It's it's a kind of a creepy show. They, they, they talk about like paranormal phenomena and conspiracy theories, right? Yep. Coast to Coast AM is a late night syndicated talk show and it covers the whole North, all, whole of North America. Uh, usually talks about lots of things, but usually comes down to the paranormal stuff. Art Bell created it, and he hosted the show for many, many years, but now a man named George Norrie has been the regular host since Bell, mostly retired from broadcasting. Ian Punkett hosts on Saturdays, providing sort of like what we do, a more humorous take on what he refers to as crypto news. <laughs> but Las Vegas reporter George Knapp has publicized Bigelow's activities. And Bigelow was reported by the New York Times in December of 2017 to have urged Senator Harry Reid to initiate what became the Advanced Aviation Threat Identification Program. A government study, which operated from 2007 to 2012, tasked with the study of UFOs. According to the New York Times, Bigelow said he was absolutely convinced that aliens exist and have visited this planet. These same guys have been behind the recent pressure for the U.S. military to release UFO footage, what you referred to. They've latched on to Tom DeLonge, who is, you know, was the lead guitarist for Blink-182 as oh, a yeah. spokesperson. Yep. But these are the same guys behind all of this. Wow. Okay, so we could probably have a full show, a full podcast, just on Bigelow. But let's get back to this Skinwalker Ranch. You know, we have yet to talk about the Skinwalkers there. Okay. So not everything the Shermans saw in the ranch was UFOs. It sounds that way, but mm -hmm. it wasn't. They claimed to see mysterious big animals. Most notably, a wolf three times the size of a normal wolf walking on its hind legs, which Terry shot at at close range with a rifle many times. 
seemingly to no effect. Then on the, Mar the night of March 12, 1997, after the ranch had been sold, biochemist Cullum Keeler, working with Bigelow's Natural Institute for Discovery Science, claimed to see a large humanoid creature spying on the research team from a tree. As he detailed in Hunt for the Skinwalker, the creature was approximately 50 yards away and watching the team safely from a tree perch 20 feet off the ground. The large creature just stayed motionless, almost casually up in the tree, said Keeler. The only indication of the beast's presence was the penetrating yellow light of the unblinking eyes as they stared fixedly into our light. Hmm. After Keeler fired at the creature with a rifle, it disappeared. It was then that I saw it, a single obvious oval track about six inches in diameter embedded deeply in a patch of snow. And it looked strange because it was a large single print in the snow with two sharp claws protruding from the rear of the mark going a couple of inches deeper into the snow. It almost looked like a bird of prey, maybe a raptor, but huge. And from the depth of, depth of the print, a really heavy creature. Okay, so... You know, this kind of reminds me of something. It takes us to a whole new level. So it's a skin-walking Thunderbird. You know, that's new. You know, uh, last week, you know, we talked about Native Americans and, you know, how they were, were seeing these Thunderbirds. And, you know, now they're seeing shapeshifters. And, and uh, I, I don't know. This is just all too crazy. Yeah, repeated sightings of human-like creatures have led some to invoke the name Skinwalker, our shape-shifting character from Navajo tribal lore. But Sherman's family ranch was 400 miles north of the Navajo Nation. Oh, boy. It was next to Ute territory. And when the Utes and Navajos ever crossed paths, it was warfare. When Skinwalkers didn't feature in the Ute religion, there were still aspects of the ranch that made sense within that context. Other strange sightings have occurred directly next door at Bottle Hollow, a 420-acre man-made reservoir on Ute land abutting the ranch, which was filled with fresh water in 1970 by the federal government. In 1998, a police officer saw a large light plunge into the reservoir and then reemerge, flying off into the night sky. One night in 20, 2002, four non a Native American men standing on the reservoir shoreline saw a blue-white ball of light enter the artificial lake. According to the hunt for Skinwalker, the glowing ball dove into the water just a few feet from the shore, then emerged seconds later in a new form, a shimmering, maneuverable, belt-shaped shaft of light. After performing a brief writhing aerial dance, the belt of light zipped away at high speed, hugging the ground before disappearing below the top of Skinwalker Ridge. The appearance of the supernatural around Bottle Hollow makes sense with the context of Ute belief. According to Jones, among the Utes, springs and certain waterways were reservoirs full of negative energy. There are evil spirits or evil sprites that could rise up out of the water and drag you in. Well, much like the Eastern legends of the... Um, of the panther lizard creature that lives in caves at the bottoms of some of the Great Lakes. Uh, so, um, there you go. Okay, so, 
you're talking about these evil sprites rising up out of the water. It kind of reminds me of, uh, you know, that old Friday the 13th when, you know, little Jason came up out of the water and pulled the, <laughs> pulled the person out of the canoe. I'm sorry. Okay. Oh, that's okay. It has nothing to do with what we're talking about. So, you know, I recall that we discussed an author who advanced paranormal theory of pretty much everything. Uh, he was that guy that, that wrote about the Mothman prophecies. Um, he, and we talked about him specifically. Uh, he thought not only about and, and wrote about Mothman, but skinwalkers, Bigfoot, dogmen, you know, and UFOs and how they were all related. Who was that guy again? Refresh my memory. Yeah, his name was John Keel. And over his career as a writer, especially writing about weird, the weird stuff that he wrote about, all these paranormal things and stuff like that, he thought that all of these sightings were part of some bigger and more meaningful experience of one world or, a, or not one dimension bleeding into another. Hmm. And um, so we'll talk more about this sort of paranormal synchronicity. Uh, next week when we cover our final topic because by the it's all going to come together and there may be a conspiracy and when we're talking about the final topic of cryptid month what is it you know and it is what what is the final topic well this is the big one this one wraps it all together there's enough stuff here to maybe make a whole month of podcasts just about this topic. But da 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 da, it's Bigfoot. Uh, We're going to go squatching. Yes. It's about stinking time. And, uh, you know, the big man himself, I can't wait. Um, and, you know, it's definitely something that our listeners will not want to miss. And, uh, you know, what, I, I hate to ask this, but what will you be wearing for that special episode about Bigfoot? Well, first of, of all, pants, but <laughs> private joke between us. Uh, but I seriously, I actually am the proud owner of a Yeti costume. So we'll just have to stay tuned and find out. Okay. And I do have pants on, so let's not go there. Attaboy. Right? Attaboy. Yeah. <laughs> all right. So I... I... Each week we are growing and, you know, more listeners, more folks in our community. And I and I just want to say, you know, we both just want to say thank you so much for your support and for sharing our program and subscribing. You know, it really means a lot to us. And um, one of the things that we really see as important is um, understanding that everyone has a story. And so what is your story? Do you have a unique story? Do you have a creepy story? Do you have one of those stories that was passed down from generation to generation that you just need to tell someone? We would like to hear about it. So you can contact us and you can email us via our email addresses right up above in our profile. Or you could hit us up on Facebook, which is facebook.com slash podcast about everything. Or you could hit us up on Instagram at podcast about everything. Or you know what? We're also tweeting, 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 whatever. We're tweeting at podcast about EV2. And be sure to share our stuff. You know, we would really appreciate that. And so, you know, I just want to say thank you so much for joining us. You know, on behalf of Michael and I, thank you, thank you, thank you. 
for joining us for the podcast about everything. Be safe. And remember, don't pet strange doggies, especially if they're seven feet tall and standing on their hind legs. Unless they're unless they're at the gym with you, right? <laughs> yeah. And eating roadkill. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> eating roadkill beef jerky. Yes, that's that's what you want. And on that note, we're out. <laughs> bye bye. Trader Vicks. His hair was perfect.